look, the industry was already challenged, you know, before all this happened, and now there's just all of these layers, you know, that have been added to it. And I guess it just depends on how long people are prepared to stick with it and fight for, you know, whatever it is that they've got. I'm Danny Vallant, and this is Dirty Linen, the podcast that takes the issues the hospitality industry finds hard to air in public and shakes them all about. We're launching the series with When Rules Change because in Victoria, on Saturday, June 20, the goalposts were shifted, the rules changed, and Daniel Andrews made an announcement. The planned opening up of restaurants and cafes going from 20 patrons per enclosed space to 50 patrons per enclosed space has been deferred. This is devastating for restaurants. It's bad news. For some restaurants, it means they won't be able to reopen at all. Alla Wolf Tasker has changed the face of regional dining in Australia. Her lake house, restaurant and rooms and spa and now farm and bakery has been in Dalesford for three decades. She's a legend, she's always doing something new and she really has always set the benchmark for Australian regional hospitality. Alla, how are you doing today? <laughs> one day at a time, Danny, one day at a time. It's a bit like that, isn't it? Uh, we were all ready for restaurant numbers to increase this week, but that hasn't happened. What does that mean for Lake House? Uh, um, some <laughs> just some more work. Look, it's, you know, I had a sharp intake of breath when we first heard and uh kind of just so many things because it was the evening when I heard and, um, you know, Saturday night, so, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, sharp intake of breath and trying to work out, you know, what we had to do immediately because, uh, you know, we had been banking on it. You know, whether we should have banked on it or not is a difficult thing uh, to say, but because we had school um, holidays coming up and a, and a fairly big demand, um, you know, we we have taken bookings. We have taken bookings up to that number. So, um, you know, the immediate thing was we need to let people know. Um, we need to try and work out what we can do for them. And so, you know, so just a whole spin of things. I mean, it's, it's the way you think every day now because every procedure that you've had in place is changing almost daily to cope with some new it's it's not a new rig it's just a whole new way of doing things and the unintended consequences of a lot of you know what we now call the new normal so it, look you've just got to stay vigilant and on your toes a lot um i've got i know look i must have been rung by about a dozen a dozen people from the industry straight away saying what are you doing how are you managing because a lot of people i mean it's probably not as bad for us because we've kept the whole team pretty much together since we closed. Um, but a lot of people in other places have actually stood down their staff completely or made them redundant and have now brought them back on because they thought that they could reopen. They didn't reopen for 20 but have now reopened for 50. So that was interesting. But um, I did a bit of pursuit on that today and apparently – the fair work regs will allow them to stand people down again. So it's it's messy. It's messy. Look, 
look, there's no one to blame. Uh, it's just what it is, you know. I, it's just a really difficult situation and everyone has to stay safe and we do have to. We do have to watch how we do things. And I think we'll be watching how we do things almost forever. I mean, these SARS things are not going to go away. There'll be a new, some other new one, you know. I mean, it seems to be, you know, maybe we've not had the um, vigilant protocols necessary in our population. Um, and this is an opportunity to do it. Well, we're certainly getting good at washing our hands, that's for sure. <laughs> Well, it's not such a bad thing. It's not. Look, I'm trying to look for the silver linings. I honestly am. It's just tough. It's like, it's, it's, um, look, the industry was already challenged, you know, before this happened. And now there's just all of these layers, uh, you know, that have been added to it. And I guess it just depends on how long people are prepared to stick with it and fight for, you know, whatever it is that they've got. You know, I know a lot of people are just sort of going too hard, let's just run a takeout business or let's just close our doors. There's no question uh, people are doing that already. They've made those decisions already, um, you know, and that's only, what, three months after closure. So who knows what's going to happen after September, you know. Yeah, that's that's a cliff that we're all moving towards. You mentioned, uh, you know, just a couple of minutes ago that it's a spin and I think that's such a good word to use. It's almost like you're always being called to look in a different direction and find that there's a new surprise there. Is Does it feel, uh, I guess, like very personally uh, destabilising? You know, the thing is that you do feel destabilised. What keeps you what, what keeps you stable is the team. You look at them and you think, you know, this is th- these are people that uh, we love, respect. We've trained in a lot of cases. We've got them permanent residency in a lot of cases. You know, they deserve to be stood by. Uh, I guess, you know, at our age, we could just kind of walk out, you know, just give up. Um, so they stabilise. And the other thing is the guests, you know, the guests that have been coming for years and just want to come back, you know, they just they tell you every day, they ring up and tell you every day, you know, just make sure that, you know, by September, you know, you can do our whatever it is, anniversary, birthday, whatever, whatever, you know, they, they kind of... Our places, I'm sure the walls are soaked with <laughs> wonderful times. You know, it's developed this pattern of being a place where people have had a good time and the expectation is really strong that you'll keep delivering and so that expectation keeps you uh, buoyant to a certain extent. Every now and then you kind of hit the wall and barely hang on. Um but it's it's what you do. It's it's what you do in life. I mean, it's it, it's hard to kind of say what would I rather be doing. Well, I, I would prefer that it was less strenuous and stressful <laughs> at the moment. Um, but you know, you know, you you swing in the service swings into place, and people are having a good time, and there's that sort of gentle hum of conversation, and people having drinks and you know, it, it, 
for, 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 for two hours you kind of think everything's right with the world, you know. <laughs> you can close everything else out for a bit. So it's a bit of a bubble. Um, look, it's challenging. It's challenging. And the future of the industry is, is going to be a huge challenge, I think, for everyone, for everyone. I mean, we've talked about that for years, haven't we? It's not, uh, it hasn't been rosy for a long time. Do you think that the pandemic has caused some of the cracks to uh, to tear apart a little more widely? Uh, I think anyone who now can't see how fragile this industry is would have to be blind uh, or deaf and dumb, you know, um, because it's not like there was a whole lot of people out there running businesses badly. There may have been some, um, but, you know, there were a lot of very good operators out there. And what worries me is that career restaurateurs are going to walk away from the industry. I mean, there, there will always be unsustainable small businesses and people who should never have gotten into it at all who um, – who, who kind of saw the saw volume in places, saw, oh, gosh, this place is so busy, they must be raking it in, and it's profitless volume, um, you know, and they don't understand the industry and they've gone into it for all the wrong reasons, you know, and, and then they've kind of become bitter about the fact that, you know, they're running an unsustainable business and um, then, there, then there's the slide to non-compliance. Compliance is bloody expensive, you know. Collecting tax on behalf of the government and paying payroll tax for every single person you employ over a certain level, what an inequitous, you know, what a, what a ridiculous tax, especially in the regions where, you know, you're trying to create jobs. Uh, fancy having to pay for every additional person that you take on, extra tax for every person you take on. I mean, all of those things have been building and building, starting from the GST when we had to start collecting that and adding it on, so adding it on to the price of something so we could never separate it out. So those that year that we had to hike everything up by 10%, everyone thought that we'd hiked all our prices up 10% well no one had and so what you normally would add on to your on onto your uh, increase you know which may have been two or three percent we didn't for two years so you know that was the beginning of that then the fringe benefits tax came in there's been things over the years that have created the difficulty um, and the the one size fits all rule which for everything even for this current curveball which is you can't have 50 people in the dining room, you've got to have 20. Well, goodness, you know, the hospitality industry is made up of tiny little holes in the wall where people for whom 20 is not possible, you know, much less 50. Um, however, they still need to make a buck or there's big restaurants in hotels that need to have, you know, 300 covers a night in order to meet, to meet their costs, you know. So 50 isn't going to cut it. Um so this kind of compliance model, which is the same with the awards, you know, the same award works for, you know, the big multinational hotels and the Mar and Parkettle tiny little place in the country and the gastro pub um, that relies on how much beer it sells and for the upmarket restaurant and, and uh, you know, people who do, do brunt breakfast and people who don't do lunch. I mean, it's just... It's just a crazy, complex situation that everyone has to comply to 
in the same way. And it's the same with these new rigs, you know, like 20 today and 50 tomorrow. No, then we're back to 20. I mean, there are going to be some victims, um, some particular victims of particular uh, requirements out of this, massive uh, number of victims. Um, and I'm not sure how you fix that. And I'm not sure what the solution is. I'm sure governments are struggling. Uh, they're struggling certainly over the, the current situation with this coronavirus because, you know, the most important thing is that we remain safe, that we all remain safe as a country. And generally, we've been doing really well. And who wants the horrors of what's been happening overseas? But, you know, for people like me who have got a long-term vested interest and deep love for an industry um, that I think has been a vital part of the character development of our country, um, I bleed for it. I bleed for its future. Um, we've been, Alan and I have been through several crises before, financial crises before, including the recession that we had to have, according to Paul Keating, uh, 87 to 91. <laughs> and what we saw at the end of that was interesting because you could pick up the shell of a restaurant, you know, completely kitted out for 10000 bucks. Um, we're going to see that now. We're going to see that now with people walking out of places, landlords uh, being left with a shell and they will be offering, you know, a year's free rent and, you know, pick this up and, you know, pay us rent in a year because they need tenants. Um, and young people are going to see places for $10,000, $15,000, $25,000 completely kitted out, you know, with rationale ovens and, um, you know, just everything that opens and shuts, and they're going to see this as some kind of opportunity. Um, it's not. <laughs> it makes me scared to think of those people. I mean, I'm sure you'd get some great restaurants out of that, but I feel like you'd get a lot of businesses that were – perhaps not sustainable without that assistance? Well, they're not sustainable. That's the whole thing. I mean, look, people go into restaurants for a whole lot of reasons. I mean, they go into the industry for a whole lot of reasons. Um, and some of them go in with the... <laughs> some of them go in with the notion that, you know, it's some kind of get-rich scheme. Well, I mean, it's crazy to think that because if you have a look at any at any one period of time at how many places were on the market, maybe quietly on the market, but were struggling to sell even be be before the coronavirus, um, you would get some idea of um, the, the perils of the industry. It breaks my heart when I see young people, you know, lose their house because they've mortgaged it and, you know, they see something as an opportunity. And they quite often are blinded by volume. I mean, the fact is that... You know, the, the old model, you know, I, I still remember the dreams of being a chef owner of a small place, you know, a small place which was 20, 30 covers, you know, tiny little place that you could manage on your own. And, uh, you know, those kind of chef-operated places are not sustainable unless you are able to charge an awful lot um, for – for, for, you know, for a seat at the table and there's not many, I mean, I guess people with a global kind of reputation and that's why the global reputations are so highly sought 
you know, amongst sort of international influences and people that come in and Instagram your food and then, you know, you get onto some sort of list and, and then you're, you're fine as long as no one closes the borders on you. Um, well, that's it. A global reputation's not of much use right now when no one can jump on a plane and uh, Instagram your restaurant for you. That's right, but it was a model. It was a model there. So in terms of the kinds of business models that we've had, you know, that was one possibility and um, you had to catch the attention of certain people and do certain things and, you know, and then you became a celebrity and then, you know, people would come and you, you were on a bucket list so people wouldn't necessarily return but, you know, they'd come overseas and they'd say, well, we've ticked off, you know, this one, this one, this one and this one and, you know, off to the next one. So there was that model uh, and I, I think that was highly aspirational for a lot of young chefs. Um, and then there's the ones that think that they're going to make a lot of money. I can remember about um, maybe eight, no, maybe 10 years ago, maybe 12 years ago when the first kind of like really big celebrity chef thing kind of popped out of nowhere. Before there were sort of small numbers of very highly profiled chefs, but all of a sudden there were quite a lot of them. And lo and behold, you know, interviewing young cooks and you'd ask them the normal question like, you know, where do you see yourself in five years' time? And they used to talk about getting day television shows or a book deal within five years. <laughs> so, right. so there's a whole lot of reasons why people go into restaurants and then there's, you know, the the, the megalopolises, which is, you know, uh, people are brought out by an equity company or, um, you know, there's a developer that already has lots of money and, and this is a bit of a playtime thing and, you know, they'll start off with a, relatively well-known chef and, you know, they'll have maybe two restaurants and then, of course, when the money doesn't come in at the at the sort of profit level that suddenly they, you know, this, this silent investor suddenly says, well, I'm not a silent investor anymore, you know, and starts demand, demanding their pound of flesh and next minute they need six restaurants or seven restaurants or whatever. And, you know, what happens is you know that, at the helm, there's a really good craftsman, a really good restaurateur, a really good chef, but you see the gradual erosion because, you know, who can do that? Who can do? Who can keep their eye out? It's hard enough to keep your eye on one place and do it well. Who can do that to keep an eye out on a whole lot of different places and have it run with love and attention and care and nurturing? I mean... You know, it's it's a different model and some of them do make money because they centralise all of their administration and resources and HR and payroll and all that kind of back-of-house back stuff that everyone has to comply with. So sometimes because they're able to cut that, they do make a better margin. But, you know, is that what we want? And I guess we all... We, we'll end up with the restaurants we deserve, the politicians we deserve and the restaurants we deserve. Um, you've had some, you know, health issues in your own life that have made it really critical for you to stay healthy and stay away from people that are sick at the moment. Can you can you talk about that and about how that's affected the way that you can manage Lake House through this pandemic? Well, uh, you know, I've been loath to talk about it, but I'm happy to talk about it from the point of view of, um, <laughs> things could be worse, you know. <laughs> so, um, yes, I mean, you know, last year, uh, you know, 
just before Christmas, I got diagnosed with a particularly aggressive form of cancer and um, and I've had a kind of a nasty journey since then. Well, the beginning of the journey was actually quite nice because I was told, even though there were bushfires raging around Australia and we already had some problems, but because I was told by um, all the people that matter in, the, in my kind of treatment, that, uh, you know, I had to, for the first time in a long time, really look after myself and, and make myself number one and care for myself. Um, I had, a, you know, an initial, while well, I had operations and the beginning of some nasty treatments and things, I, you know, I did. I spent some time in the sun on my balcony, read a few books, um, ventured down to, re- to the restaurant a little bit more rarely, um, slept a lot, um, and I thought, you know, I think I won't be able to do this forever, but this is rather nice. But then, of course, we got the um, we got the coronavirus, which was worrying to begin with, and then we got closure, which was seriously worrying. So, so um, you know, it's an added layer of impost because my um, my immune system is is highly compromised. So I've had to go for a period of time without seeing family or friends or staff and running all my meetings on Skype and Zoom and whatever, um, even though I can see the restaurant from my from the lounge room window. Um, you know, I wasn't going to do Morse code, so, um, you know, I was on the screen a lot talking to <laughs> um, staff and teams and everything and keeping morale up. But honestly, in the last couple of weeks, uh, when we've had to try and turn the ship around for opening, I've just given up on that. I mean hang it it's just it's just too difficult so um and the adrenaline kicks in because you know you've got to you know you've got to get in there and fight for everything so you're in the restaurant well I've been down there a lot annoying people (laughs) I've been down there a lot (laughs) annoying people and having meetings and you know keeping morale up and also the comms the communication to staff is critical over this because they're, you know, they're worried about their own lives. Um, and we've had exactly what, you know, you know, we had close to 30 people out of our 100-plus staff who who had fallen through the cracks in terms of assistance from government. So we had been, you know, doing free rent and work for, work for, work for some rent kind of stuff and work for some food boxes from our farm and and ran a little produce store to try and keep a few people employed during this time and generally kept everyone on the books and having their leave accruing. So the team basically is still together. So when we reopened, it's the same team, and we reopened um, just for the long weekend to start off with, four days a week. We thought we'd um, capitalise on that straight away, and it was the right thing to do because the demand is out there bless them, all our guests. Um, so, you know, there was a huge peak. I, I don't know how long that's going to last. I mean, people were just so anxious to travel out of Melbourne and just get away from their houses and apartments. And, you know, what we can guarantee them is that we'll give them a good time, but we'll give them as safe a time as possible because we put all our staff through training and, you know, we have all the protocols in place and, uh, you know, we've had some people come and actually work from here, like move into one of our, one of our suites. And, really? Yes. Oh, that actually sounds quite appealing. Yeah, take a, few, take a few days just away from the same four walls and come up here. And Well, we have got um, 
sort of Prada speed NBN now, so um, they can do a lot of things here. Look, I think, you know, it's the way of the future anyway. I think a lot of people are going to work from home and I think a lot of people are going to move into the regions because they can. And uh, you, you know, should get National Cabinet in there, Allah. I reckon National Cabinet could set up at Lake House for a while and you can sort them out, sort out the restaurant industry, get rid of that fringe benefits tax, <laughs> sort out payroll tax, just get it all done at once. The National, I'll need to tell you that the National Cabinet of both colours tends to run whenever I come anywhere near them. I think they have heard from me <laughs> loud and clear over the years over many, many issues. Um, you know, predominantly the availability of a, of a decent workforce for the industry, which has been critical in our reliance on overseas skilled migrants. And it's not just our in- industry. I mean, it's interesting, fitters and turners, we don't train fitters and turners and, you know, there were massive um, closures of big companies that I knew um, when you couldn't get any, you couldn't get any, you weren't allowed to or they had restricted the number of working holiday visas coming from the Philippines who apparently train a lot of fitters and turners. You know, there's kind of anomalies like that, you know, it's it's it's, it's sort of weird, you know. It is, it's, yeah. Yeah, it is. Look, it's it's difficult. But anyway, look, I think that um, – I think the – you know, the, was the industry in peril? Yes, it was. Is it going to get worse? I think it is. And we do have to watch for the lack of sustainability in restaurants opening up because and, – and, you know, the media has some responsibility in this. I understand, you know, I've, you know, I've got lots of friends like you amongst the, the colleagues amongst the industry and, you know, the, the answer is always, look, we're, we, work for, um, we work for the guests, for the public, and if there's someone down the road who is selling incredible food incredibly cheaply, then we need to tell them about it. And I get that. But when that restaurant falls over in 18 months' time or two years' time, but also brings down a whole lot of other people around it because of the – you know, there, there, are some, there are some streets in Melbourne where I reckon there must be suburban streets in Melbourne where, you know, you walk the length of two blocks and there's 32 places selling breakfast. This is true. You know, and – well, you know, and they're all trying hard. They're all trying hard. Like no one's sitting around being lazy. They're all trying really, really hard. But are there too many? And if the only selling proposition is is that you do something really special but a lot less expensively, then that is not sustainable. And I can tell you that compliance is the most expensive thing in the industry. So whether you're complying to a very complex award or the payment of penalty rates or the payment of superannuation or the forward payment of tax or the umpteen things that you now have to do as being part of the industry, all of those things add up. So even if you're a small place, a tiny place, you're going to have to either you know, you're going to have to do your accounting at two o'clock in the morning to to juggle all this stuff. And it what it does, what it does is it it makes people slide into non-compliance, 
And once you get non-compliance, then you're in real trouble. People go into the cash economy simply because they end up having to do that because they can't comply. And when you're in the cash economy, people don't get paid super. Um, government doesn't collect the GST, so it's 10% off everything. People don't get trained. Um, career professionals don't take those jobs, you know. And so you get this, this it's not a real it's not a real industry. It's a, it's a fragile kind of industry. It's not a career type industry where we're building careers for people, long-term careers for people. It's a kind of fly-by-night industry. And it, it doesn't feel sound to me. You know, it doesn't feel sound to me at all. Yeah. I, I don't know that that's not the type of business that, that you've created. It, like pulling back a bit from from all that detail that it's so easy to get mired in as a business owner or you, or you can't help but be, you have to be to have a sustainable business. But what what is the reason that you run restaurants? Like what is the ultimate goal for you? Mm. What's the ultimate goal? Well, I mean, it's like saying to a surgeon, why are you a surgeon? I mean, it's the same. I mean, it's what you do and you enjoy most in life or you find if you're lucky enough to find something that you that you that you're prepared to work hard for and still enjoy then that's kind of like a blessing i mean there's so many unhappy lawyers and dentists out there you know doing things that they don't want to be doing (laughs) so i think if you find something that you really love doing and it it suits you the trick is how do you do it for a long time and that's where you do have to start thinking about building the size of your business because you can't keep doing what you do forever so I couldn't do the hours in the kitchen forever. I had to eventually replace myself um, to a certain extent. And then the interesting thing is that the, the new things that I was learning were quite captivating anyhow, you know, which, is, which was how to make the business more sustainable, how to be a better leader, how to motivate people, um, how to get people really interested in, in the career uh, of of the industry I love. I mean, there was a whole kind of layering that happened over the years that that satisfied me. I guess. I mean, you you should only keep doing it while it satisfies you, because when it stops satisfying you, I mean, you just become <laughs> you become like a bitter, twisted lawyer who doesn't want to be doing it anymore. It doesn't matter which which industry you're in. You know, if it's if it's the wrong one for you, it's not worth staying in. Is it because there are so many different aspects to restaurants? I mean, I guess there's the, there's the people, there's the produce, there's the guest experience, there's those people that are ringing up and asking you to um, create the magic for them. Is it is it that there are so many different aspects to being a restaurateur that you love it? Well, well, there are there are so many different things, but I guess the biggest one is that sense of you are but one member of the orchestra. You may be the conductor. But when that orchestra swings into action and it plays beautifully together, there is nothing else like it. It's just like, it's like honeyed syrup, I can't even tell you. <laughs> because when, when service is it just like, you know, it's the pattern of the procedures that you've put into place that when it all works together like clockwork. And the great thing is that you get the satisfaction of instant gratitude. You don't wait for someone to pay the bill 
you know, in six months' time, they tell you as they're leaving, look, we had the best time and we're coming back, you know. So it's like curtain up and you deliver a performance and you get the instant feedback. I mean, I'm sure that's what keeps people on stage. And we put on a performance every single time, whether it's breakfast, lunch or dinner or, you know, whatever it is. It's a performance. It's a performance that, you know, you've got to love in order to, for it to have any kind of truth behind it. So it's addictive. Yes, you do hit the wall. Yes, um, if you're trying to run it as a business, I think it's probably harder and harder and harder nowadays, which I think, which is why career restaurateurs are walking away from it. And maybe there's now, certainly amongst the the bigger players, you know, uh, developers as investors and equity groups as investors and rather than career restaurateurs as investors um, or people that simply don't know and get into it for silly reasons, um, which is a worry. But I think the true career – and, I mean, I was very fortunate, very fortunate to have spent time in kitchens very young um, – you know, that were just amazing places, you know, where, you know, the Roger Verger, for example, Cuisine of the Sun, <laughs> you know, um, Georges Blanc, uh, you know, in Vonar, these places were regional restaurants with amazing, ama- amazing um, followings, but also they were so grounded in their local region, they were just... They, they were just mind-bogglingly beautiful with a, a great sense of place. And I, you know, it, for me, it, beca- began, it, it, it began the love affair for me. And then when I saw that relationship that those places had with their suppliers, you know, where the, the producer, the grower would come in in the morning and share a little, you know, little charged espresso that had a bit of a shot of cognac in it as well and chef would stand at the back door with speaking to whoever's brought the zucchini flowers in the morning and sometimes they were dealing with a second-generation grower and they'd talk about the cousin down the road who was growing radishes or something else. And, you know, there was this sort of kind of sense of being part of that region. You know, that became a love affair for me. There was no question that's what I wanted. I just had no idea why I wanted it. I now get it. I now get why I wanted it and why it was important to those people at that time. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's a whole complex thing. It's not just getting, gee, aren't my carrots good because they've come from down the road. It's it's part of this strong community network of, you know, we have so many people that rely on Lake House in this region. You know, every contractor, every carpenter, every fridge mechanic, every electrician, you know, every um, person that does um, painting and upholstery, you know, we, we, we're the biggest client for a lot of those people and and again we're dealing with sometimes second generation and that's on top of the growers and the winemakers I mean we've got a winemaker just up the road who is second generation now passing clouds you know and and there are other similar suppliers around that region and it's that sense of being part of a community Um, and that's why I'm fighting so hard for what's happening now to a certain extent because when we built here, when we bought the land here in 1979, it was a very fractured down-at-heel 
little town with 21% unemployment, much like the rest of um, regional Australia at the time. And there were no small supplies. It was all contract, big farms, monocropping, selling food out of the region, nothing destined for local tables. There was no sense of that. We'd lost that peasant class, that opportunity to have a peasant class in Australia, which is another whole story. Um, but, you know, what we have now is a very strong, uh, generally resilient community, uh, very tightly knit, very creative and growing, growing. It's not a retirement community. It's growing with young families moving here because it's a good place to, to, to live and work and it's an easy commute into Melbourne. And, you know, we've got more kids going to local schools now than ever before. You know, they're struggling for places. So it's a growing community. So it's very gratifying. So you've got to fight for that. And we employ 110 people in this town. So Yeah, it's an amazing layered uh, uh, phenomenon that you've built and that you've brought to central Victoria layer by layer, year by year, over three decades. It's really, it really is incredible. So, Ella, when, um, when I come up to Dalesford next and I'm, I'm eavesdropping on National Cabinet that you've got in one of the, one of the conference areas there um, and, and it's time for my lunch and I come into the restaurant and I'm in that warm bubble, the hum, and I sit down on one of those beautiful cushioned banquettes, uh, what will I have for lunch? Tell me, tell me a dish that I must order. Well, you know, you know how our menus work. I mean, it's whatever we're pulling out of the ground or whatever is coming from down the road, possibly, you know, because the seasons are very, very easily felt here. So it's a real bonus whether you're a cook or a gardener because you know exactly where you are with the seasons. And we've had a lot of frost, which means it's good for truffles. So there's a good chance we'll get some local truffle any minute. Um, certainly harvesting at our farm at the moment, there's masses of Jerusalem artichokes and people kind of get a bit huffy about Jerusalem artichokes. You know, they think that they, um, you know, that they have a bad reputation in terms of your digestion, but they're absolutely delicious. They, mm, you know, I love they them. Can, they can be some, they can be just, be, you know, we're doing, we've done them, you know, roast, whole roasted, well, they do, we do them differently, but at the, we have had them roasted completely so that they're caramelised on the outside and just warm and gooey in the inside and just top them with creme fraiche and some house-smoked roe on top, you know. So it's kind of the poor man's um, root vegetable with the sort of elegance and and grace and luxury of, of caviar on top. But That sounds so good. <laughs> well, you know, we, we do a lot around vegetables now because we've got the massive farm, so that's only going to increase. But And uh, we've had a great harvest this year. Um, lots of mustard leaves. Sorrel, funnily enough, we've still got sorrel in the hoop houses, lots of herbs, and we've got all of our spring plantings. But you'll always get seasonal things. You come here in spring and there'll be lots of beautiful spring things, lamb and broad beans and asparagus and lots of things to look forward to. And I think that's the thing. We need to look forward as much as we possibly can. Absolutely. Well, it's it's always too long between visits to Lake House, but I'm definitely looking forward to the next time I go there. Uh, I hope there aren't too many new things to spin around. And I, I really, I, I know that you guys are going to come out thriving and just thrilling people with uh, your hospitality. Um, 
it, we know it's not going to be an easy road, but um, yeah, I know you're going to tread along it bravely and beautifully. So thank you so much for chatting to us today, Alo, and certainly wish you all the best. Thanks, Danny, and thanks for all you're doing for for all the hospo people. Thanks so much, and also thanks for letting me ramble because I realise how now what a lack of construction that whole conversation was. I think um, there's that's a beautiful conversation, and you were worried that we wouldn't be able to chat for a couple of minutes. So <laughs> you've actually managed to <laughs> we've actually managed to have a good old chin work, haven't we? <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Talk soon. Thanks, Bob. Thank okay. you. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production. <laughs>